David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. The first thing you need to know about tonight's talk is that it, it comes with a couple of warnings. The first warning is, and I'm saying it first, so you don't have to sit there and go, I'm saying it. You're going to get confused. All right, now we're going to try very hard, and I'm going to use the board, not to make it confusing. But I'm going to be dealing with about 10 different rulers, five in the north, five in the south, some of whom share the same name. <coughs> there are at least four rulers that have the same name in the north and the south, and not only do they have the same names, but they're in different orders, and they are, in some cases, even related to each other. So it gets confusing, so don't worry, you will not be the first person to be confused, and you certainly won't be as confused as I am. But we'll try and take it slow, and if you're sitting there going, Oh, I can't believe he pucks that one up. He's confused about Then tell me at the time and we'll fix it. But it should be okay. Don't trepidate. It will be fine. The second warning I need to tell you about tonight's talk is that a lot of people are going to die. <laughs> Not, God forbid, in this room. <laughs> but a lot of people we're going to talk about are going to die and they're not going to die well. It gets very ugly. There's a lot of blood. So if you don't like that, if you're not really into the whole violence thing, you might just have to gain some inner perspective on what this is all about. But the reality is, the reality is, is that this is a very unstable period, but it's a critically important period for all students of Jewish history to understand, and much more so for us, who we're trying to look at the concept of monarchy, the concept of what it means to be a king or a queen in Israel, and how that evolves. And in that perspective, it's doubly critical, because we see certain changes and certain themes. So in some ways, the personalities and the events are Yes, people are coming in. We don't need to keep... Because, see, I can see everyone. So I see everyone's eyes go, oh, a person. <laughs> what we need to realise is that the themes are ones we can begin to relate to. It is a very unstable period. And I don't know if you can imagine what the Middle East would look like at a time of regional instability, <laughs> what that would even feel like to a generation that was undergoing that. The reality is, is that the Middle East has been unstable for well over three millennia. And why? Obviously because of its geographical importance to everything going on around it. But I want to look at this particular period, those of you uh, who need a reminder of where we're actually talking. So that's us here around about the year 2000 in common counting. And I'm going to call this 
minus 1,000. So that's, that can be zero and that can be 1,000. And if we were to divide this up into minus 500, so really we're talking about a period around about here, more or less throughout the uh, 9th century BCE, so about 2,900 years ago. And if you would recall from last week, uh, the United Kingdom, and I can't go over each week what we did last week too much, but you would recall that the United Kingdom of David, of Shlomo, has now been split into a northern and southern kingdom. So, if I drew this large, and here's the land of Israel, we have two kingdoms, very important to understand this, two kingdoms. Now, before we discuss any of the details going on in the two kingdoms, and you would remember where we got up to, because in the south we have arrived at a very stable, enduring king called Asa, who's on the throne for over 40 years, and we have had a series of kings in the north who have uh, not got any predetermined way of knowing who's going to be the next king. So it's been a series of violent assassinations. And we ended up right at the end of last week with a guy called Zimri, who was basically effected a coup d'etat against the Baasha dynasty, uh, killed uh, Baasha's successor Elah, occupied the royal palace at Tirza, said, I'm now the king. And a very big general called Omri decided that that wasn't going to be a satisfactory situation and Omri, who was clearly loyal to the previous kings, took a big chunk of the army and surrounded Tirza and basically Zimri uh, burnt the palace with himself inside it. That's kind of where we got up to. If we were watching this as a soap opera, that would have been the last scene with Omri standing there on the sides of the flames going, aha. Now, a very important thing to understand as a background to tonight's talk. We won't be going into this in incredible detail, but it's indispensable for an understanding of what's going on tonight and what's going to go in forward in the next few weeks, the next couple of weeks. And that is this. When I talk about regional instability, it's not, it's not a simple picture either, but You would know also from the first talk that much of the Middle East, as a result of the catastrophe that had happened in the previous couple of centuries, had left much of a vacuum in the Middle East. And that is because, you know, the nations of the world, and I mean even the prophets of Israel tell us this if you read the book of Ezekiel, that the nations of the world are like a forest. And some trees grow tall and some trees have their moment in the sun and only get so far before other trees overtake them. And the famous big empires of history that we know now could have been very, very different ones if circumstances had been different for various nations that were coming into play. So, some of the nations surrounding the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, Israel here and Judah here, 
were trying to take advantage as well of this incredible vacuum whilst Egypt and whatever was going on over here had still not yet resourced themselves sufficiently to go on their big empiric expansions. One of those nations that has already started to come into play, and it's very important, seems that red is the only colour that's visible. What about the black? Is here to the northeast of Israel. I was waiting for you. Is your phone on silent? <laughs> because it's the rabbi, I'll very quickly tell you, you're going to get confused and there's a lot of blood. And the other thing I'm going to say also, and this is important, I didn't um, mention this, and it's kind of interesting because everybody I'm talking about tonight is a historical figure. They're not characters from comic books. They lived. And they're historically attested to outside the biblical narrative. If you go to the British Museum today and you look at the black obelisk, if you go to the Louvre and you look at the various steles that they have there also, which French archaeologists recovered from the Middle East, you will see mention of a number of the figures that the Tanakh talks about. And that's really the critical period we're looking at tonight. There's a nation here which went on to be influential but didn't survive the ancient world to come down to us as a distinct entity. And that is the nation of Aram. From where we get Aramaic and so on. Aram is a nation that has kings, it has dynasties, it has its own religious discourse. And at this particular time, it's struggling with the other nations to establish itself as a primary entity in the region. There's another nation, two other nations, that are of great importance to us in this period, that are surrounding us. The other nation that's here, more or less to the east of the Jordan River, but in the center of the Levant, is a nation called Moab or Moab. The Moabites basically for a while now, certainly since King David, have been a vassal state of Israel. They were subjugated by Israel. They are very, very much aware and conscious of their own ethnic identity. They have developed their own religious system that is based on some of the local uh, and wider regional deities, but is influenced even itself by Israeli spiritualism. But they are subjugated and they are always trying to find their national autonomy. And in the south is another nation that is subjugated to the kingdom of Judah. And that is the nation of Edom. They've also been subjugated for quite some time. Now, throughout the course of the period that we're going to be talking about tonight, and I'm just backgrounding so far, because without which it's very difficult to understand, there are going to be numerous wars that the kingdoms of Israel and Judah are going to fight either separately or together against these entities. We already saw last week, I didn't go into this last week, we saw last week that Judah 
If you remember, Asa paid off the king of Aram to distract Baasha, the king of Israel, so that he wouldn't create those fortifications near Jerusalem. And so already some of these, uh, Judah and Israel, are already starting to play a little bit of geopolitics with Aram. But in the course of uh, our talk tonight, there'll be several wars, certainly more than one with Aram. But let's start where we're up to. So Omri is standing there by the flames. He's watching Zimri go up in smoke and he's going, now I'm king. But it wasn't so easy for Omri. Now, because I promised you you would get confused, I'm going to... I don't need the rest of the Mediterranean right here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to draw a loin... And all the kings in the north, I'm going to put below, just kidding, above the line. <laughs> and the kings in the south, I'll put below the line so that we can see the distinction between them. So the first king I'm going to talk about is Omri. And if you want a date, dates are very difficult. People pour all over these dates. But we assume that Omri came to the throne around of Israel the northern kingdom of Israel maybe around the year 870 minus 870 or so but it wasn't so easy for Omri to start with first of all for the first four years after the death of Zimri there was a civil war Omri had to fight a civil war against another general clearly someone who was more loyal to the agenda of Zimri, and that was a general called Tibni. And that war, and literally, I mean, there's no kind of thumbs up on Facebook, or there's no ballot box democracy. It really was the period of Manda Alim Tfei, whoever was mightier would succeed. And it took Omri four years till he ended up defeating the forces of Tibni and could become the undisputed ruler of the northern kingdom. Omri is a very, very different king from his predecessors in some fundamental respects. Omri felt that he was strong enough that he could start making enduring policy decisions. And one of the policy decisions that he made that's going to have tremendous influence going forward is that he was interested in alliances with other nations. Military alliances, and, but above all, economic alliances. The Kingdom of Israel did not feel threatened by its southern neighbour Judah. Omri felt that it was of far greater benefit for the Kingdom of Israel to look to the north. And what was north? No, Assyria is to the east. Syria is like over here in Iraq. Lebanon. They didn't call it Lebanon then. It was Phoenicia, it was Sidon, it was Tyre. Now, the king, the United Kings of Israel, or kings of United Israel, had already had some economic ties with the north. We saw that with, with uh, 
King David, we saw it with King Solomon, but Omri's idea of these kinds of economic alliances were not merely economic, they were deep, the cultural alliances as well. Because Omri, well the first thing actually, the first thing Omri actually does is he moves the capital. He realizes that even if he rebuilds Tirza and the Burnt Palace, Tirza was never really a good capital for the Northern Kingdom. It wasn't easily defendable. It wasn't in a particularly interesting or central place. So he decides to create a new capital of Israel. Literally buys some land, does a Canberra, buys some land and sets up a whole new start that he's going to call the capital of the Northern Kingdom. And he's going to live there, the whole administration's going to be there, the military's going to be centered there, and that capital, don't call, don't call out, don't call, that capital city, which is going to go on and be the, the famous capital city of the Northern Kingdom, is of course, put your hand up if you know, I know that you know, winner of Chidona Tanakh over here. Well, what's that capital? Shomron, it's Samaria. As we know in Samaria. So Samaria's here, and Samaria's in the Jezreel Valley. It's an amazingly good place to have a capital. Central-wise, all the trade routes go there. It's a reasonably well to defend. Uh, but the biggest thing about it, and what everybody um, who saw it, whether they liked it or not, uh, they all admitted that uh, it's very nice. It's very nice. So he sets up in Samaria and he's establishing cultural as well as trade relations with the north which becomes solidified and Omri is a big tough ruler now. He's strong so he can have this kind of muscle to say I'm here I'm not going anywhere. He's no longer inwardly focused on trying to prop up his, his rule, as the previous kings had been. He's the first to establish what we call the Omri dynasty, to establish the, the, a full dynasty in the Northern Kingdom. And to solidify that, he marries or he organizes his son... And his son's name, don't call out, and his son's name is, and you've all heard of this person. You just don't realize. You're going to go, oh. <laughs> Omri's son is? Correct. Even though you called out, it was okay. No one else jumped in. We, in Hebrew, it's Ahav, but we'll use the English, Ahab. Or uh, we'll call him Ahav, but it's written Ahab. Is not someone running around looking for a whale. It is, in fact, a king of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel, the son of Omri. Omri organizes a marriage for his son Ahav with the daughter of the king of Tyre. And that king of Tyre is a guy called Etbal. So you can already know that... Uh, they're not necessarily that from. Uh, Etbal, of course, 
himself had taken power. He, his career path was not military. His career path was actually a priest. So he became, made himself like a priest king of the whole Baalist cult of Phoenicia. And Omri had the schut of marrying his son, the prince regent of the northern kingdom, to this daughter of the priest king of Phoenicia. And that daughter's name is... Isabel, that's Jezebel, right? So Ahav is going to marry Jezebel. These acts of Omri demonstrate what the northern kings were all about. They, were, they took their ability to rule for granted. They believed in military strength and economic and cultural ties. And they weren't that interested in preserving any kind of authentic indigenous spirituality to the people of Israel on the land of Israel. It doesn't mean that Omri and Ahav were full speed ahead Baalists. They weren't particularly in their own life. But they didn't put any obstacles in the way of anybody who wanted to adopt Phoenician practices and Phoenician religions. And a lot of people in the north didn't need a second invitation to join in the various Baalist cults that were popping up in the north of Israel. Now, we'll talk about Baalism in a moment. I don't need to tell you that Baal worship is not quite like your average shul service. Uh, it, well, it, um, it involved a range of activities, but fundamentally, Baal is a foreign god. It's the one thing that the Torah goes on and on and on about. If you settle as a people on the land, you've got one God. That God is your God. It also is the God of the whole universe. You don't need any other God. You don't want any other God. And the God that is God is going to not tolerate other gods. So already, if you're reading the Tanakh and you don't know anything else, you're already thinking, this is not going to end well. But, amazingly, as we will see, amazingly, as we will see, it is not so much the following or the promotion of foreign gods that turns out to be the real turning point in the collapse of the Northern Kingdom. Or, or the collapse, rather, at this stage, of the Omri dynasty, which is not going to happen for a while yet. Now, Omri dies after about 12 years. He probably dies and sleeps in his own bed. I don't know how people die like that, but nothing remarkable about that. And his son, Ahav, came to the throne. Asa, Asa is still the king in the south. Asa, who we looked at last week, long-reigning king, 
quite religious, quite stable. He's still king in the south. Ahav marries Isabel. Now, Isabel, as the a Phoenician princess and someone who had strong connections not only to the royal family of Phoenicia but also to the whole priest, Baalist priesthood of Phoenicia. Look, Isabel was not very nice. Let's just, let's just say, you know, Ahab's not standing around on a Friday night saying Eshet Chayel before Kiddush. Uh, he, he's not particularly from either. He's pretty secular and his wife is pretty gung-ho Baalist. What is it about Baal? Who is Baal? Let me just spend, I just now, I really need to spend a minute on Baal. Uh, because um, I realize that maybe people don't know enough about Baal. Baal is difficult for historians and anthropologists today, through the fog of history, to work out exactly uh, which part of Baal was, is a generic for all forms of a type of worship, or whether Baal was a specific god. But what we do understand is that there were Baal, which we know in Hebrew means Lord, were, there were various Baal entities and mo all the Baal entities would be saying our Baal is the greatest Baal it's a, do, do you know what I'm saying it's not, it's not like they were saying uh, Baal equals the God of the universe Baal is it, that Baal began it begins locally and only when nations become more and more powerful does Baal become kind of a little bit universalized. Baal basically starts as a storm god. As a storm god. Now, those of you who were following a couple of weeks ago when I was explaining about the Middle East, are you okay? Are you okay? Sorry? I'm in Baal. You, you need Baal, yeah. <laughs> is, is, the, is that you can survive in the Middle East on rain if you are within a certain geographical zone that ends around here. At these two centres, you've got big rivers, the Nile here, the Euphrates and uh, Tigris here, but um, this area relies on rain. And storms are very, very important. I guarantee you, if the whole of biblical history had happened in New South Wales, they also would have developed a storm god, I imagine. But Baal had a very unique aspect, which is going to play in the narrative in many ways. And that is what we call, it's referred to in Latin, a very interesting theological aspect about Baal that's known as Deus Absconditus. Meaning that sometimes Baal would go away. He wouldn't be available. Having his hair done. Went to Bali for the weekend. <laughs> Sorry, but Baal's not. You go to offer a sacrifice or a votive offering to Baal. Sorry, Baal's not in today. And that also makes sense in relation to being reflective of 
rain cycles and storms and so on. And therefore Baal was identified with agriculture and identified with fertility and so on. Uh, now the particular brand of Baalism that Jezebel brought into north of Israel was the Phoenician variety called Baal Melkart, which uh, we understand relating to the Semitic words for king and city. So it was, Baal was now an urban god. And I don't know if anybody have seen ancient Phoenicians, Phoenician uh, pictures of Baal. If I was the sort of person that had nice slides and PowerPoints, I'd be showing you Baal in Caulfield Shul. That would be nice. <laughs> the Baal's always looking very uh, benign. But there wasn't a lot that was benign about the way that Baal went about doing things. All right. By the way, on the subject of Achav, and it's very interesting because we need to look at this. Uh, the Omri-based kings, the Omrides as they call them, were really, really into alliances. They were into this kind of regional perspective on things. They weren't local. They, they really saw themselves. So while their gods might have been local, they saw themselves as having quite extensive influence. And there is amazingly, and I, uh, historians talk about this, so it's quite interesting. Whereas normally we read about these things in the Bible and then we're trying to find references to them outside the Bible in, in other places where people have written chronicles and so on. But we actually know about Ahav, an entire incident about Ahav that's not even recorded in the Bible and that we only know from archaeological discoveries made elsewhere. And when I say recorded, I don't just mean that various other peoples have kept their traditions. I'm talking about physical recordings. We are now at a stage of history where the technology of recording information is just sufficient that 3,000 years later, we can still have those physical artifacts. Obviously, we're talking about things being engraved on basalt and so on and treated in a certain way and then find themselves fortunately buried under sand and in very dry environments for a long time. But nevertheless, not every, much as most of it was probably lost. But the few things that have been preserved, we can read. And what we learn is that in the 850s, and this is, this is really astonishing, we know in the 850s that there was a very famous battle. This is one of the most famous battles in the ancient world. It's not the subject of tonight's talk, but there was a famous battle called the Battle of Karkar. The Battle of Karkar happened around here. You can imagine battles happening in central and southern Syria. Because it is just round about now that we start to see the first stirrings of a nation that over the course of the next few centuries is going to engulf the whole area.
That is a nation whose tree rose up in the forest and engulfs everyone. And that nation is Assyria, Ashur. But they themselves were still really just flexing their muscles a little bit. They were not yet the Assyrians as they're going to become. That doesn't happen for another century, century and a half. This is their first incursion. And Shalmaneser III takes a big Assyrian army and has his first expedition westward to attempt to conquer the Levant. And therefore there was a coalition of all of these nations that were normally at war with each other because certainly during the time of Omri and uh, beyond and before him there was a cold war here and a cold war between all of these nations but they all banded together in a coalition to stop the Assyrian forces at Karkar and it worked. The Assyrians realized that it was going to be too difficult to get past the armies of this 11-state coalition of the Levant. And they went back and did other things. And, uh, but th th there were several incursions, actually, uh, from the Assyrians before they, over the course of the next century, they finally, uh, they finally came. So we don't know about the Battle of Karkar. What we learn about is the battle of the battles against Aram. Now, spending a bit of time on Achav because it's so instructive because this is really where we get to the guts of the nature of the king this whole idea of whether or not the king of Israel if we appoint a king if we if a king gets to the throne in whichever way they get the whole idea of droit de seigneur whether how much right do they have to do what they want to do what are the limitations on the kingship. David HaMelech found that primarily the only limitations on his kingship was the moral conscience presented to him by the Navi, by the prophet. Ahav was testing this in other ways. And obviously I'm referring to the famous, famous incident of the field of Navot. I can already see people nodding heads. Who knows what I'm talking about? Don't be scared. Who knows what I'm talking about? Who has no idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> oh, well, that's enough. <laughs> Navot was a guy who had a very nice plot of land in Samaria, not far from the royal palace. And Ahav wanted it. And he went to Navot, as he said, I'm the king. Navot says, I know. And Ahav says, I want your field. I'm going to pay for it, but I would like it. Navot says, I'm not selling. Ahav said, well, <laughs> I don't think you realize I'm the king. And I'm offering to pay you for it. How much do you want? Navot goes, look, I'm very flattered, I'm very honoured that the king thinks my field is a lovely veggie patch, but it's a vineyard. Well, it's, it, it is, it, this different version, but let's go with a vineyard if you like. 
first of all, I'm not going to find anywhere nicer than this. So if I sell it to you, I've still got to go and find a field somewhere. And you know that thing, I mean, sometimes you can be living somewhere and someone offers you $10 million for your house, but there's no point selling it because there's nowhere else that you'd rather live than right here. So what's the point? Besides, says Navot, I've bequeathed this already to my family and my kids are expecting to get it. So thank you very, very, very much, Your Majesty, for your interest, but I'm not selling. So Navot goes home and he's depressed. And he's lying on the bed going, oh, Navot won't sell me his vineyard. And who walks in? His wife. The lady Macbeth figure, and she walks in, she goes, what's wrong with you? Why are you depressed? He goes, oh, Navot won't sell me his vineyard. His wife goes, are you serious? Grow up here, man. You are the king. You are the king. You do what you want. So already Ahav, we can already see his inner personality is someone who at the end of the day recognizes that there might be justice limits to the king's power. Perhaps even recognizing them more than, than, than say, Shaul. I reckon if Saul had wanted the field, he just would have taken it. But already you can see that by the time of Ahav's reign, there's a complexity about the king and the law and what he can and cannot do. But Ezevel comes along and says, don't you worry, I'll fix it. And of course, she organizes some horrendous slanders against Navot, uh, mutinous slanders. She brings false witnesses to uh, accuse Navot uh, in, a, in a kangaroo court. And he is dealt capital punishment. He's killed as a result of these false and slanderous accusations. And since he died as a result of capital punishment, his property reverts to the royal assets and Ahav gets his property. And that's all very nice. Now, for Ahav. Who do you think is really, really upset about this? God. And it just so happens that during the reign of Ahav is when we see the dominant part of the career of a tremendously critical figure in Tanakh, who we're not going to go into detail right now, of course, because we're talking about kings and queens. But that, of course, is this unbelievable prophet that is running around the country and that is Elijah Eliyahu Hanavi and Eliyahu Hanavi clearly Elijah the prophet clearly finds himself as representative of this tremendous faction of discontent with the ruling dynasty Bearing in mind that it was not just this act of tremendous injustice perpetrated by Ahav and Jezebel, but that the northern kingdom was starting to become quite the economic machine. Not as much as we're going to see in the next hundred years as Assyria develops itself as the market 
and yet still in formal civil relations with the Northern Kingdom, the gap between rich and poor is growing wider and the nobility is behaving in a corrupt way. But everything, sorry? Yeah. But everything was seen as embodied in the personality of the king. The king was responsible for the welfare of the nation and an embodiment of the welfare of the nation. So Elijah sends word to Ahav, and it's very, very important. It's not a random thing. It's not everything that the Tanakh is telling us about this has significance. But Elijah tells Ahav that he, the prophet, has been given the keys to reign. And it's going to be a severe drought. It already is a severe drought. And it's not going to rain until justice is found for the people. And, of course, that they get rid of all the Baalist influence. So you can imagine that whole back, and it doesn't rain. And it doesn't rain for years. Meanwhile, Ahav is effectively pursuing a program of elimination of all the prophets of God. And the influence of the prophets of Baal, the storm god, are becoming greater and greater. I imagine that the Baalist prophets were telling the population that the existence of the prophets of God was the reason that Baal was not sending the rain while Elijah was saying pretty much the opposite. And of course, that's the background to the massive showdown that happens on Har Carmel, on Mount Carmel. So when you go to Haifa today and you're standing on Mount Carmel, that's where that showdown happened, looking over the ocean. I'm not going to go into detail on that I'm assuming that everybody knows what I'm talking about when I talk about that showdown. Put your hand up if you know. Oh, good. Put your hand up if you don't know. All right. In brevitas extremis, Elijah had a reality show with the prophets of Baal, 400 of them, on Mount Carmel. Um, and Elijah said to them, very simple, we'll both set up an altar, we'll both pull, we'll slaughter a bullock, we'll put it on the altar, we'll cut it up, put it on the altar, each one of us got an identical sacrifice. And uh, you go first, and you ask Baal to answer your sacrifice. And then I'll ask God to accept the sacrifice, and whoever sacrifice is accepted, that's the God. That's the true God, and of course all the people go, oh, that's a great test. They're, they're there by their thousands watching. This is massive amounts of people on Mount Carmel watching this incredible reality show. And the prophets of Baal start in the morning and they're wash, gnashing and wailing and they're calling, oh, Baal, please, Baal, please answer the sacrifice. Baal, please come, blah, and no one's answering. Baal's. So, in the, it gets to the afternoon. They've been going for several hours. 
and Elijah starts mocking them. He goes, oh, maybe Baal's away, maybe he's chatting, maybe he's on the phone. Maybe you need to call a little louder, he might be getting a little harder hearing. And they go, and then it gets to late in the afternoon, it's, it's already Mincha. And they're cutting themselves with knives, and they're crying, and they're screaming, and da da da. And finally Elijah says, I think you guys have had enough. And he takes a bucket of water and pours it all around the sacrifice and all over the sacrifice. I mean, the whole idea is the sacrifice is supposed to light up with fire, but he takes water and he pours it all over it. And he stands back and he says, God, please accept my sacrifice. And immediately, <laughs> massive wall of fire comes out from heaven and consumes the whole, and the whole, it's like the whole thing, the whole altar explodes. And of course, the thousands of people that are there chase the prophets of Baal down and they slaughter them all. Achav, meanwhile, went and had lunch. So the Tanakh tells you. There's a certain moments where the Tanakh clearly has a sense of humor. He says, Achav, watch this. He says, no, I think I'll have some lunch. So he sits down. Ezebel, of course, simply rammed up the whole persecution of the prophetic class and Elijah had to run um, and hide for quite some time before eventually uh, passing on his mantle to his successor. Now, we've dealt with Achav. I want to go to the south. Because Asa's son succeeds him in the south during the reign of Achav. And Asa's son, who becomes the next king in the south, who's stable king, for about 25 years, very, very important and interesting king. And that is, of course, Yehoshaphat. Yehoshaphat is a different king from his fathers. Yehoshaphat does several important uh, make several important changes in Judean society that we're going to talk about very briefly. But the first thing we need to know is that Jehoshaphat is not scared of alliances. And he doesn't want to continue the Cold War with the North. And there becomes an alliance, a peace, and even a cooperation now between the two kingdoms. Was your hand up? Oh. Between the two kingdoms. We learn a lot about Jehoshaphat's fortifications throughout Judea and archaeologists have found those fortifications. We also learn a lot about the fact that Jehoshaphat reformed the legal administration of the state. He set up courts in all of these fortified cities and towns throughout Judea and interestingly enough made a um, separation, if we can call that, between church and state, between religious administration 
and secular administration. Not quite necessarily how we would understand the separation between church and state in the modern period, but nevertheless, it's very, very clear that he distinctly made various people in charge of religious affairs and other people to administer law and the courts. He, of course, as the king, stood at the apex of both of those, particularly in terms of justice and law. Jehoshaphat was drawn in through his alliance with Ahav into joining him in a war against Aram. And that, as I said, there are several wars and we're not going into them all. It's going to get confusing as it is. But at the first battle of Ramot Gilead, there are several battles of Ramot Gilead, but at the first one, Jehoshaphat took the Judean army and joined Israel in trying to recapture some of the cities that Aram had made incursion against. Now at that battle, Ahav had a kind of a premonition that things were not going to go well for him there. And he asked for prophetic advice. And the prophets all said, yeah, it'll be fine. Uh, but there were a couple of prophets that said, no, it won't. And so he decided that he was going to go with Jehoshaphat, but that Ahav was not going to go in regal outfit. He's going to dress as a common soldier. Because it soon became known to them that the whole strategy of the Arameans was to concentrate all of their firepower at the king. This is a common tactic <coughs> in the ancient world, if you could get away with it. So he decided that he would turn up as a commoner. And yet, and yet, an Aramean soldier drew an arrow and just randomly shot it. And it went straight into Ahav. He was mortally wounded at the battle and brought back to Samaria where he died. And Jehoshaphat just managed to get away from that battle with his own life and the Judean army intact. There were other more successful battles against Aram, but that one is the one where Ahav lost his life. In a subsequent alliance with the north, Jehoshaphat went to battle against Moab in a very, very interesting, interesting episode. Jehoshaphat, by the way, was castigated by his own spiritual advisors as to why he was making these alliances with these wicked kings in the north. But Jehoshaphat felt that Judah relied on that alliance and sometimes you have to go to war with your allies even if you don't really want to. Moab was attempting to rebel. And the combined armies of Israel and Judah went to subjugate them. And with the whole conflagration, Moab attempted to make an alliance with their dogs so that they would both get uh, escape velocity together from this level of subjugation. The basic uh, nut of it is, is that the Moabite army was defeated and they were chased back to the walls of their city. 
and in an absolutely desperate act, the king of Moab, Mesha, after whom the Mesha Stili, the famous Mesha Stili is named, the king of Moab, Mesha, took his firstborn son to the top of the wall of the city and sacrificed him. This act so appalled Jehoshaphat and so appalled the armies of Judah that they literally just walked away from the battle. It actually caused them some deep level of existential revulsion that Jehoshaphat was never quite the same after that and didn't really want to have any more of these sorts of military adventures with the northern kingdom. I imagine that the king of the north would have just said, well, you know, that's what, that's what people do. But for Jehoshaphat, it was a, a very, very difficult experience to undergo. All right. Ahav. <laughs> Ahav is succeeded by his son. Go on. Who succeeds Ahav? Let's see who's really good here. Who? <laughs> I've got two people here I look at because they... No, anyone? Okay. Sorry? Who said that? Very good, Dr. Farah. Very good. Ahaziah. Now, not a lot to talk about Ahaziah because... Oh, by the way, by the way, just one more thing on Jehoshaphat in the south. Sorry, this is an important thing to mention, and I will, I will, uh, I will be doing this. And I, th this is the moment, in fact, this is the very, very moment where I need to interject now. This is me, David. I'm interjecting. Yep, the voice from the mothership has stopped. I'm just interjecting now. And I need to tell you that this is the moment where I want to sort out the confusion before it happens. Okay? Ahav and Izevel have a lot of kids. Ahav also has lots of kids by other women. Izevel was the queen consort, but doesn't mean that, you know, I'm a king. I don't restrict myself in that kind of way. But they have three children that are of importance to this. One is his son Ahaziah. The other is another son, a younger son, called Yehoram, and a daughter called Atalia. Yehoshaphat, having made alliances now, with the northern kingdom and Ahav always being open to alliances because that's what the Omride king did they themselves made a shidduch between Jehoshaphat's son who was going to succeed him the crown prince Yehoram and Ahav and Izevel's daughter Atalia so Atalia is going to go and become Queen, meaning queen consort, in the south married to Yehoram. 
So Yehoram's going to have a brother-in-law called Yehoram. Everybody follow? Everybody with me so far? It's going to get more confusing, but as so long as we're not getting ahead of ourselves. Everybody see that? I mean, that can happen any day, right? Good. So Ahaziah, they're all going to go on the throne at some various points. Ahaziah, oh, and ju, ju, let's just get this out the way now so that you can relax your sphincter. Yehoram is going to be followed by his son called Ahaziah. All right? But we're not there yet. Just, it's there. Right? So you can all panic now and it's there. We're going to go through it. Ahaziah in the north who succeeds Ahav, <laughs> it's during his time that Moab really makes a strong and basically successful bid for its independence. Ahaziah, however, suffers a very unfortunate accident. He falls uh, on the upper level of his villa. Um, well, some, some people find that amusing, but uh, in fact, that apparently happened quite a lot in the ancient world. You know, and, uh, I mean, you know, you're on the top story of some complex structure that's basically probably no stronger than scaffolding is today, and, and, and you fall. Anyway, he injured himself. So he asks a group of messengers, he tasks them with going to Ekron. Remember Ekron? Ekron's here near Gaza. And asking of the local Baal of Ekron, who had a very good reputation for prognosis, ask the Baal of Ekron. And the Baal of Ekron, the name of that deity, one you're all familiar with, was called Baal Zavuv, from which we get Lord of the Flies. He said, go and ask in Ekron from the prophets of Baal Zavuv whether or not I'm going to survive this or not. And they're on their way. Now, if you are part of a delegation on behalf of the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and you're on your way to ask the prophets of Baal Zavuv at Ekron, the prognosis for your king, who do you not want to run into? Who? I'll tell you who you do not want to run into? Elijah the prophet. Are there no prophets in Israel, says Elijah, that you have to go to Ekron? Because you have not had faith in the God of Israel, and even more, you've gone and asked a foreign God, I can tell you that right now. I'll save you time. You don't need to go to Ekron. You're not getting up. You're not going to recover from this. And in fact, basically based on the behavior of you and your father and your mother and your grandfather, you're all going to die. And the whole house of Omri is going to come crashing down. Now, if that news alone wasn't enough, Ahaziah, following that, kind of died as a result of his injuries. But he was young. He was young. Didn't have any kids to succeed him. So he was succeeded on the throne by his brother Yehoram. Yehoram is going to rule for the next 12 years. 
one of the things that Yehoram is very interested in in terms of his alliance with Yehoshaphat because now we've got Yehoshaphat, stable king in the south a semi-stable king in the north, Yehoram and they're looking at ways in which they can further this alliance and Yehoshaphat has an interesting project that he's starting to get involved with anyone know what that project was? he realizes, oh I control Edom that means that I control all of the land as far south as the Red Sea so why don't I start getting involved in a bit of shipping I don't know anything about shipping I don't know how to build ships I don't even know where they go I have heard of this far distant place that's full of gold called Ophir the Tanakh tells us several times gold from Ophir and everyone was obsessed with gold we're going to build ships we're going to go to Ophir Shlomo Amelech went to Ophir we're going to go to Ophir where's Ophir? do you know where Ophir is Yossi? Well, sorry. The reality is, is that no one knows where Ophir is. There are a number of theories, and most historians or scholars that have looked into Ophir actually believe, as radical as this might seem, that it was way east, that these ships were intending to go all the way around the Arabian Peninsula and even as far as India and Sri Lanka that some people posit that Ophir was Sri Lanka but some people even posit that Ophir is Peru some people posit that Ophir is Spain no one really knows it probably was as you're both saying it probably was somewhere on the southern coast of Arabia or maybe on the African side of it yes but I think that was named after was that, was that an ancient name? That's interesting. I'll look into that. I'll look into that. When I looked into Ophir, I didn't see that. But um, they're not sure where it is. You know what? That's okay. Because they didn't get there. His uh, ships crashed. And uh, he decided that project. But he didn't. What was interesting is he didn't want the north involved. Yehoshaphat told Yehoram, uh, told, uh, Yehoram that it wasn't going to happen. Anyway. After Yehoshaphat, Yehoshaphat dies, 25 years, regarded as a very righteous king, had a little bit of a, of a dance there with the northern kingdom, but didn't actually uh, get, allow Judah to be influenced culturally by the north. And it comes down to us with a fairly intact reputation as a strong and just and wise and stable king, who basically embodied all the values that Judah wanted from its king. Now, not all those values are going to be things we're all going to sign up with. These, they were, we're not talking about, you know, chilled liberal democracies here or constitutional monarchies. But they are much, much more stable, if not as economically exciting as the North. You know what you're going to get. You know what you're going to expect. And Yehoram is followed by his son, Ahaziah. Yehoram actually, uh, oh, one second, one second, one second. Uh, we have to work out which Yehoram we're at. All right. So Yehoram in the south. Oh, yeah. That's an important thing to say. 
at some point I have to get on to the way I'm going to finish this because I know how it all ends and we just have to get there. But Jehoram, when he comes to the throne, does something that is quite upsetting for, um, for us to think about and beca- is, a, is a practice in the ancient world, but we had not yet seen this in, uh, in either of these kingdoms, and that is that Jehoram, on acceding to the throne after the death of his father, Jehoshaphat, assassinates all his brothers. He has about six brothers and he has them all killed. Something that generally doesn't bring good karma. Um, Yehoram dies as a result of a terrible uh, infliction. He has a whole relationship there with the prophet Elisha who succeeded Elijah. All of those details and all of that complexity is important, but I want to stay thematic because I want to show how this whole thing ends in a massive conflagration. Because Yehoram, so now we have a situation where Yehoram is in the north and his nephew, remember these two are brothers-in-law, yes? And Yehoram in the south is married to Ataliah. Yep. So there's a brother-in-laws, these two Yehorams. And then Yehoram has a son called Ahaziah who's going to come to the throne. And Ahaziah was more than likely named after his uncle who fell through the lattice. What do you follow? Ahaziah decides, not a great king, only on the throne a year or two. He's really not that impressive. I'm now talking about this Ahaziah. This Ahaziah died a while ago, fell through the roof. But this, this Ahaziah now, the son of Yehoram. Yehoram dies of an awful, awful disease, painfully, um, which, as I said, might, you know, you assassinate all your brothers, it's not going to work out well, karma-wise. Ahaziah is now on the throne. He's only been on the throne a year. And he gets drawn into joining his uncle in another expedition against Aram. Now listen carefully, because here's the roller coaster. Everything I have said till now is just taking us to the top of the slide. And we're now about to push off. Ahaziah joins his uncle Yehoram in a war, another battle at Ramot Gilead. At which Yehoram, King Yehoram in the north, is injured. Yep. So he goes back to Samaria to recover. He went into that battle in an alliance with Ahaziah, the king of Judah, his nephew. And while Yehoram is recovering and recuperating in Samaria, his army is still camped against Aram. The king has gone back and Ahaziah has gone to visit him. Now, sorry? 
Okay, I'll say it again. I'll say it again. Yehoram, Yehoram and Achaziah have gone to war together. Alright? They've all got their armies. But Yehoram gets injured in the battle. So he goes back to Samaria to recuperate. So his nephew, Achaziah, the king of Judah, who's also got his army there, says, I'll go to Samaria and I'll visit him. I'll visit my uncle while he's recuperating. Everybody follow? Now. <laughs> Here we go. One of the things that God had told the prophet Elijah before the spectacular end of Elijah's career was, I want you to anoint someone else to be king of the northern kingdom. I want you to anoint a guy who, as it turns out, is going to be a general in Yehoram's army. And I'll do this person in red. I want you to un unbelievable. What happened to the red? Huh? Oh, there it is, yeah. That's an orange, this is red. I want you to anoint a guy called Yehu, the son of Nimshi. Now, Elijah did not do that. I don't know if you noticed, if anyone who's read that whole thing, he never did it. God said, I want you to appoint, I want you to anoint, anoint. Very unusual language in terms of the kings of the north. I want you to anoint Yehu, the son of Nimshi, because I'm sick and tired of the house of Omri with all their corruption and their violence and their awfulness. And above all, their idol, well, not above all, their idol worship. And above all, their corruption and their perversion of social justice. And also, that field of Navot. That's really, really still pissing me off, says God. Eliyahu does not do it. Instead, he passes on that job to his successor, Elisha. But Elisha also doesn't do it. For some reason, those two great prophets don't really feel like they want to do that. And so Elisha gives it to one of his students who is not named in Tanakh but the sages of Israel tell us who, so no one reads the Bible like the sages of Israel every single word they work out they tell us who that young student was anyone know? be very impressed if anyone knows who that was according to Chazal it was actually Yonah ben Amitai the prophet Jonah but don't write that down. That's, 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 that's the rabbis. Okay? You can write it down, but just be aware. That's Midrash. This prophet, he says to him, Elisha says to him, look, there's something that Elijah told me to do and I haven't done. And you, you, you've got to go there and you've got to find this general called Yehu and you've got to anoint him. So he goes to the camp, this pro, young prophet, young prophet, goes to the camp of Israel camped by Aram. Remember, where's the king? Back in Samaria. And he goes and he says, I'm looking. He goes to the officers' mess. Literally, they're sitting around and they're just doing what officers do on their day off. You know. And he says, I'm looking for Yehu ben Nimshi. 
And Naomi Nimshi is one of the commanding officers there. And he says, yeah, that's me. What do you want? And he says to him, uh, I need to speak to you in private. Remember that the prophet Elisha had told this guy, told this young prophet, he goes, you need to go to the, you need to anoint him and you need to get out of there as soon as you can. So he goes and he goes, I'm looking for Yehu ben Nimshi. He goes, I'm here. He goes, I need to speak to you privately. And they actually, they go into another room privately. And all the other officers are going, ah, they're making fun of, ah, the prophet's going to speak to you. And he takes him aside and Yehu goes, what's this all about? And the young prophet says to him, well, actually, I'm here to annoy you as the king of Israel. And he takes oil and he smears it on him and he goes, you're now the king. You're anointed as the king in the name of God and immediately bolts out of there. Runs. Yehu comes out and they say to him, what did that, what did that madman want from you? Literally, they say that to him. The Meshuggah prophet. What did he want? And Yehu goes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right? We're not discussing it. And they go, no, 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 no. You're going to tell us. What did he want? Yehu goes, well, if you must know, he anointed me as the king of Israel. And all the other officers go, that's fantastic. And they lift him up and they start running around with him going, here's the king. And Yehu goes, well, listen, first of all, you all need to calm down. I'm going to go back to Jezreel. I'm going to go back to Samaria and I'm going to deal with this. So he goes and he bolts it on a horse, picking up a few archiparchim along the way, and he goes to Samaria. Yehoram and Achazia are sitting in Samaria on the last deck of the palace there having tea, and they look out and they see Yehoram, they see Yehu riding towards them. And they go, he's riding pretty fast. What's everything okay there? So they send out messengers to see what's going on. Why is Yehu returning from the battle at such a pace? But none of the messages they send out come back. They all fall in behind Yehu. So the king himself, Yehoram, who's probably feeling a bit better by now, dons his own gear, goes out on a chariot and goes out to meet Yehu. And he, as soon as he gets close enough for Yehu to hear him, he says, What's up, Yehu? Is everything all right? And Yehu basically says to him, to his own king, What's it to you, you son of an idolatrous slut? At which point, of course, Yehoram realizes that everything is not okay and immediately turns around and tries to get back to Samaria and Yehu just takes his bow and arrow and and the arrow goes through his back, out his front and boom, he's dead. He's shot, the king of Israel. He then turns around and slaughters Ahaziah. He slaughters the king of Judah. He then slaughters the entire royal court. He slaughters everyone he meets. He then goes to Ahav's sons. Ahav had 70 sons and they're all being educated in a particular palace. And he goes there and he slaughters them all. Then he announces that he's going to have a huge convocation for Baal. And he's going to give Baal the biggest present 
that anybody has ever given Baal. So all the prophets of Baal go, wow, Yehu is actually going to end up being a Baalist. That's fantastic. He's called a Baal convention. We're all going to go there. And he said he's going to give Baal the biggest sacrifice Baal has ever had. And of course, he takes the 400 prophets in a building and he says to 80 soldiers, no one comes out of that building. Any man who comes out of that building alive, your life will be forfeit. And then he sends in a whole squadron of SWAT and they go in and they just wipe 400 prophets of Baal. Then he goes back to Samaria and Isabel is there and she says, she's standing at the window calling out, you know, she puts on her makeup, sits at the window going, what are you going to do, you Zimri? And he basically calls out to the servants and gets them to throw her out the window and she dashes against the walls as she falls down and they take her body and they throw her body where? into the field of Navot, where she's eaten by dogs. So, Yehu is now in the north. He's now king. No one, no one slaughters really as many people in such a brutal fashion in the whole of the biblical narrative as Yehu. The destruction against the house of Omri was total. Ironically, and this amazing irony, is that on the black obelisk in the British Museum, in the Assyrian exhibition, they actually have a picture of Yehu, a picture, a pictograph of Yehu, paying tribute to the Assyrian kings, and it describes him as Yehu of the house of Omri, which is obviously ironic. That's why some scholars believe it means of the land of Omri, because he wasn't of the house of Omri. He was the one who wiped out the house of Omri. Yehu is going to take the northern kingdom away from the Baalist influence. He's going to make Israel great again. And he's going to close the doors against the cultural influence and revert back to the original idolatry of the northern kingdom, which was, of course, the golden calf. That is why, by the time you get Yehu sets up a dynasty, by the time you get to the fourth generation after Yehu, and you get big kings like Jeroboam II, he's called Jeroboam, to show you that the spirituality and the religious discourse of the northern kingdom was going to go back to its original default position. The whole Baalist adventure was just slaughtered in blood by Yehu and his followers. Meanwhile, who do you think in this whole story is not happy? Not, it's not God. God's okay with this. Hello. Obviously, Atalia. Atalia has seen her brother slaughtered by Yehu. She's seen her parents slaughtered by Yehu. She's seen her son slaughtered by Yehu. Now, Atalia realizes is her chance. And she goes on to become the first queen of Israel, of Judah. But not before she slaughters every single descendant that she can find of the house of David. The Baalist alliance is still open for business in Judah. And she introduces Baal into Jerusalem. She is now the sole ruler of the Judean state. 
and she kills, even killing, according to some accounts, her own grandchildren in the process of wiping out all possible Davidic opposition. And remarkably, and remarkably, one extremely important woman in Jewish history that a lot of people don't realize, a woman, and this is really this whole episode, when uh, we've spoken about women in the past, we've spoken about this woman uh, quite extensively, but while Atalia is slaughtering all that to become ruler in Judah, another extraordinary woman called <laughs> I love Deborah, but she's away before. Called Yehosheva. Yehosheva takes a small child, a baby, the last surviving son of Ahaziah, and hides him. Yehosheva, as it happens, is a sister of Ahaziah, but she is married to a guy called Yehoiada, who happens to be a priest in the temple. A Kohen. Not, we're not sure if he was Kohen Gadol or not, but he was an influential priest in the temple. His wife Yehosheva, a sister of Ahaziah, took this little baby whose name was Close, close. Yehoash. Yehoash, who in English we can call him Joash. She takes Yehoash and she hides him in, where's the best place to hide him? In the temple. That child grew up for the first six, seven years of its life. All it knew was the temple because it could never be let outside and grew up inside the temple. At the age of six or seven, they brought, sorry? Ben Sheva Shomim. Ben Sheva Shomim. Oh, no, that, that, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. It could, it could be that the episode happened before that, but let's go with seven. They took this seven-year-old, because it's the famous Haftor, Ben Sheva Shomim Yehoash Pemalcho, which actually is my permitsvah Haftor, sorry. Um, at the age of seven, they took Yehoash out and they ex revealed him and his presence to the people. By this time, of course, everyone was sick and tired of Atalia's idolatrous tyranny. And they took him into the public square and they crowned him. And everybody's going, yay, yay, yay. And of course, the tumult reaches back to the palace. Atalia hears the commotion, comes down to find out what was going on and sees this seven-year-old boy being crowned, realizes what's happened, chucks a tantrum, and then they just, the, pop, the crowd just takes her out of the city into the fields and rips her apart. So it all ends in blood, in the north and in the south. And we've got to the definitely the end of tonight's narrative we're now in a situation where we have Yehu a strong king anointed by God in the north 
but with a very different way of doing things. And we have a child king, Yoash, that we're going to start off with. He's also going to be a very different type of king we're going to look at next week. What we learn about this critical period really has got a lot to do with the fact that the king is seen as a personification, in a way, of the welfare of the state. That is why, that of course is why the king of Moab sacrificed his son on the wall. The fate of the king, the actions of the king embody and represent the nation. But perhaps the most important thing to understand about this historical period here that we've looked at is because we're not yet, we're not quite yet at the rise of the literary prophets that we become familiar with, but we have started to see the rise of two institutions that are going to become very important going forward. One of which, of course, are the prophets, who have now established that kings must, if they're going to endure, and if their dynasties are going to endure, must found their administrations and their societies on justice, and we're also at the very turning point now of seeing the re-entry of influence of the priesthood. Because they are the ones that have saved the Davidic dynasty in the south. And going forward, the priests are now going to be more and more influential in terms of their engagement with royalty and with the king. And so uh, I'm hoping that we have absorbed that. And I'm hoping that people didn't get uh, confused. I hope I haven't given you... Nightmares, but uh, can I just, can I just ask you a thank why you for listening to that. One second, I'm just, I'm just taking a couple of very quick questions. I'm not going to hop it. Yes. Why does God choose this man to be the anointed? Why does God choose? Why does God choose Yehu ben Nimshi? I think because God wanted something that was total. Very, very interesting. When you look at, go, go and read the narrative. Go and read the narrative in Sefer Malachim and in Divrei Yamim. In two different places. When we first encounter Yehu, he seems kind of a man, he's a soldier, but he's not a man who's particularly looking to have a fight. Sometimes, and I don't know if this has happened to anybody here, but sometimes when a prophet comes and anoints you as king, it can have an effect on your psyche. <laughs> does seem to happen. It happened with David, it happened with Saul, it happened with David, it happens with a lot of the kings. Not that many kings actually got anointed. Most of the Davidic kings were not anointed because they were just in the succession. Yeah? But to be anointed to start a new dynasty, that's a whole special thing. Now, I do have some notes here that hopefully will help people um, scheme. I just want to make sure that we covered the, the, uh, the main issues. Yeah, yeah, we did. And uh, now, next week... I've got to tell you, I really, really, really want you to come back next week because it's kind of like a part two next week of this whole narrative and what's going to happen next. And then, please God, after that, we'll be just having one kingdom to deal with at a time. Um, but uh, next week is going to be week four and that is, that's a very, very also super critical period historically for us to understand how it is going forward. Find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, 
or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.